The problem with the mercenary are twofold. The first problem with the mercenary is you can't trust them. And you can't trust them even if you're their boss because they have a price. So somebody comes and basically buys, basically buys a price. The other is half the mercenaries shoot their bosses. <laughs> okay? So my whole stuff is you're a horrible, horrible boss if you decide to buy mercenaries. Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And on this episode, we continue our run of legendary authors. We have none other than Rashad Tabakawala. And Rashad is the chief growth officer at Publicist Group. And Publicist Group, as you probably know, is a massive advertising and communications conglomerate with over 80,000 people. Wrap your head around that, a marketing company with 80,000 people. And Rashad has a brand new book out called Restoring the Soul of Business. And we have a riveting conversation that I think you're going to really enjoy about how business leaders are overly focused on spreadsheets and data and why the best companies are actually actually like religions and the importance of being human beings with each other at work and a lot more. Um, now, before we get started, as you know, every company needs a growth plan and strategy and therefore a growth platform. And that's what my friends at Oracle NetSuite do. As a matter of fact, NetSuite is the number one company in cloud ERP. And over 19,000 companies in over 200 companies have chosen NetSuite as their platform for growth. And I want to invite you to go to netsuite.com slash different. And as a listener to this podcast, you'll be able to pick up your free seven key strategies to grow profits, your free guide, seven key strategies to grow profits. Check out netsuite.com slash different today, because if you don't know your numbers, you can't grow your business. And that's why you need my friends at NetSuite. I also want to thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. Um, our new podcast on marketing called Lockhead on Marketing recently became the number one podcast on Apple in marketing and business. And um, that just um, that just knocks me over. So thank you so much for getting into the podcast. If you haven't already, if you're in marketing, you might want to check it out. It's very different from this uh, podcast in that it's short, educational, and we focus on the mindsets and strategies required for winning. For entrepreneurs and executives who, who appreciate counterintuitive approaches to marketing, check out Lockhead on Marketing at Lockhead.com or wherever you get legendary oddcasts. And my friends at Splunk are the category queens and kings of data to everything. They want to help you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. Learn how you can turn data into doing today at Splunk.com slash D2E, as in data to everything. That's Splunk.com slash D2E. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Over the last few years, because of technology, data, financial markets, and the twitchiness of time where things are moving extremely fast, companies and therefore individuals have started tilting towards what I call the spreadsheet side of a business. And the spreadsheet side of a business is the stuff that's both measurable, data-driven, and financial. But 
to be a successful company as both a spreadsheet side, which is what I've described, and a story side. And the story side is the culture, the purpose, the values, the emotion, and the talent of a company. And the soul of a business is when you combine the story and spreadsheet in a way that you have a viable growing business with viable growing people in a community that is also viable. And so over the last few years, because also my background that I work a lot with advanced technology and digital companies, I gave a talk in January of 2019, which is maybe it's time to optimize for the citizen and not the consumer. And this was to folks like from Amazon and Apple and Google and you know Facebook. And so you know what we've created is something incredible in both the empowerment, the connections, and the wealth creation opportunities. But at the same stage, there is a downside, which is increased inequality, increased polarization, and to a great extent, a breakdown of trust. And could it be that in chasing just the data side or the spreadsheet side, we've lost the soul of our businesses? Now you're, you're preaching to the choir on these topics. But that said, the spreadsheet crowd, and it's a big crowd, as you well know, you've worked in the corporate, the global corporate environment for many years. There's a lot of very spreadsheet oriented people. And there's a lot of people who might hear what you just said and think, well, that's all touchy feely, mamby pamby, West Coasty, do goodery. We're here to make money. Like, let's not confuse anybody. And so, w- what do you say to those folks? So, my basic belief is if you want to make money, you have to combine the story and the spreadsheet. And if you decide to only go down the spreadsheet, the spreadsheet will be a cell that you will be imprisoned with and which you will, in which you will die. And I bring it out in a very simple form. Let's look at industry after industry and look at two companies in each industry. So let's look, for instance, at airlines, Southwest versus United. Let's look at retail, Costco versus Walmart. Let's look at quick service restaurants, Starbucks versus anybody. And what you're basically finding, and then look at the most valuable companies in the world. Three of the five most valuable European companies are companies like Caring and LMVH, which are luxury brands. In the United States, it's Apple, which is a luxury brand. So the spreadsheet people basically optimize for yesterday and the future brands optimize for tomorrow. And to a great extent, my whole basic belief is If you want to make money, you combine the two. If you don't want to make money and you don't want to have a long-term job, just do the spreadsheet. Because A, if you do the spreadsheet, someone will come in with a better spreadsheet and beat you. And eventually an AI machine will take your job. Thank you very much. So anybody who says that, my stuff is, you've already lost. You're even asking the wrong question. (laughs) But other than that, (laughs) that was a great answer. And You know, it begs, it's funny, you know, this is a topic that just shows up in my life over and over and over again. And it's, it feels like a topic that is, that has sought me out. And so I must be seeking it out as well, which is, you know, what is the, what is the role of a company, right? It's an existential discussion. And of course there's an economic one and I'm not against the economics. I I think, I think financially thriving companies are a very important thing. 
and a very impressive thing and a praiseworthy thing and a creative thing. So I'm in no way, shape or form against entrepreneurship or capitalism, far from it. But yet at the same time, there is this existential conversation. What is the purpose of a company? So to me, the purpose of a company is threefold. The first one is the purpose of a company is to ensure that its four constituencies are looked after. And the four constituencies are number one, the people who they serve, which they call customers, members, users, consumers. Number two, is the talent that works in the company. Number three is the community in which the company or the company's offices and factories are based. And four, the country in which that particular segment of the company is based. And if you optimize balancing for those four, obviously there is no perfect model. That happens to be one reason. The second part of a company's reason to be is to find ways to generate a profit, a financial profit, which basically allows the company to both reinvest in all those first four criteria as well as continue to grow. Because to me, growth is an important thing, but growth measured across those four indicators. The third one is in many ways today, with the exception of the time we spend sleeping, and that would be probably the second biggest thing we do, most of us spend our time at work. And whether it's a small company, which is a lot of the jobs, or a large company, we spend a lot of our time at work. Therefore, the third area is how do we basically create purpose, value, meaning, and connections for life. Because in effect, in the United States, and in many countries which are not agrarian economies, companies define life. And in effect, if you basically say, I only define profit, that is pretty ridiculous because that is very short-termism. So you have to balance these three. And for leaders who do not know how to balance the three, my stuff is get out of the way. There's a new generation coming. Hmm. Earlier, you said something fascinating, which was citizen, not consumer. Yes. So maybe sort of open that one up for me, if you could, Rashad. Sure. So, you know, one of the key things is we often companies say we are besotted by the consumer. For instance, Amazon, right, is we are consumer obsessed. That's interesting. But if you're consumer obsessed, you are basically thinking that me as a human being, my reason to be is to consume. And I believe part of my reason to be might be to consume, but I also happen to be other things. I happen to be a parent or friend. I happen to be part of a community. I happen to live in a country. And so if you only fixate on one, you leave out the other three parts of us, and the other three parts of us is either a parent, son, daughter, you know, some relation, a citizen of a country or a community, which is the second one. And third is our own non-consuming dreams. 
Because my basic belief is if consumption satisfied everybody, then in effect, you should basically see the countries with the greatest consumption are the happiest countries. And that's not necessarily true. Correct me if, if I'm wrong, but isn't the United States one of the highest consuming countries? And uh, compared to its, you could call it peer group, um, happiness is pretty low in the United States compared to other westernized, developed, quote unquote, countries. Yes, and that's primarily because the focus has been that a thing will get you what you want. And the reality of it is a thing will get you some of what you want. So like you and like many people who are on this broadcast, I am not actually in any way anti-capitalist. I went to the ultimate capital school in the United States, probably in the world, called the University of Chicago. What is particularly interesting is one or two people who have endorsed my book are leading academics in the University of Chicago, and they wrote a book. This is a University of Chicago book called Saving Capitalism from the Capitalists. Okay? And a big part of capitalism, when you think about it, is competition. And the unique form of capitalism that some industries now have in the United States is the absolute lack of competition. So often, you know, people will say in my industry advertising that there is a duopoly called Google and Facebook. That's stupid. It's two monopolies called Google and Facebook. Actually, now there are three, Google, Facebook, and Amazon. And no client is switching money from one to the other. They're switching money from everybody else to those three. Because if you want search, there's only one place to go. Bing has got 8% share. 8%. 92% is Google. Do you know by right? any chance off the top of your head how much money Microsoft has spent on Bing to get that 8%? Billions and billions and billions. And the only yes. reason it actually exists today is to help them in AI. Okay? There's no other reason for them to be in that business. Because outside of Bing, they're out of every single consumer business with the exception of Xbox. Yeah. It is quite stunning, isn't it? It, it, is, it is absolutely stunning. It is amazing. Do they right? even make a mouse anymore? I don't think they make Remember a mouse. Remember they used to make you know, a the, mouse. They used to make all kinds of things. But when you know, Sundar Pichai came over and basically said, we're a business company and let's dump windows, those are two interesting things. We're not an everything company. And forget about windows. They don't have a windows division. But you know, to a great extent, what you're now basically seeing is if you want social, you go to one company. If you want search, you go to one company. If you want transactions, you go to one company, right? And that is not capitalism. It's basically the world of no capitalism. And so what is basically happening is the rules of the world changed. And a big part of what I'm trying to explain to people is we're living in a new world. So for instance, uh, you know, we're living in a world where you no longer decide whether whether it's good for the consumer only. So the other reason I talk about citizens and not consumer is without a doubt, as a consumer, I love Amazon. So I went and spoke at Amazon to 300 people. So someone asked me, or 500 people, they said, what do you think about Amazon? So I said, I'll give you two answers. As a consumer, I love you. As a citizen, I'm not so sure. Right? And I said, you guys, uh, and this was before the New York decision and the Washington DC decision. So this was like late last year. Um, 
or earlier last year. And I said, look, I tell you where you're going to end up. You're going to end up in New York and Washington, D.C. at the end of this stupid show that you've basically done. Right. And think about it. The world's richest person, the highest market cap company at that stage, running around asking for handouts when they already know where they're going to actually end up. And the truth of the matter is they only had five markets they could potentially end up in. And it wasn't two, right? There were basically five. It could have been Austin, Atlanta, Washington, Chicago, or New York, period, over and out. And my whole stuff is, you know what this is? You're treating me like a consumer, but you're also treating me like an idiot. And the whole question is, you're an idiot consumer is what they tell us. Yes. And it is interesting how many companies have treat us like we're stupid, but the companies that treat us like we're smart are often standout companies. You know, uh, I hadn't been there for quite some time, but recently I, I, we have a Patagonia store. I live in Santa Cruz, California. And yep. We have a Patagonia store here and I hadn't been for quite some time and I was there recently. And I just thought, you know, how much I like buying from this company yes. and how much I don't really shop. Like if they have the thing that I think I want or need, if they make one, I, more, more often than not, I just buy theirs. Like I don't go to see if like some other outdoor brand has it because I love what they stand for. And I, I know people who know Von Chouinard and I, I think he's for real and I think the company's very for real. And so um, that's a whole other sort of relationship you end up having with a company or a brand. And for the most part, that's absent in most companies. It is. And what tends to happen is those, the companies that have that have what I truly believe is the real moat for their business. So, you know, we are talking a lot about the technology moats, but outside of maybe a handful of companies, less than 10 in the United States who have true technology moats, you know, Microsoft and Amazon or Facebook or Google, a few others. No company has actually a technology mode. In fact, companies can never win on technology. It's like companies saying they win on electricity or they win on FedEx, right? <laughs> without technology, without electricity, without FedEx, you can't compete. Absolutely. So there was a generation about 10, 15 years where some companies were caught behind the technology curve and now catching up. But you don't differentiate. Scott Galloway, the NYU professor, says, Tell me a company that actually wins because of the way they use Google or Facebook. No company wins because of the way they use Google and Facebook. But if they don't use Google and Facebook, they have a problem. And so Google and Facebook basically becomes a tax on their business that they have to use. Right? And so a big question that I ask people, including my marketing friends, is outside of the fact that many of these companies own your data, own the search, own the customer relationship, right? and own everything else, you only run the factories. So why the hell do you exist? And, and what unless answer you does that lead people to? They're basically not panicking. That's one of the reasons like, because I, that's one of the reasons I gave this talk, which is my stuff is, do you actually know, you know, there's a lot in my industry where people say agencies are gonna be disrupted. My stuff is before I'm disrupted, every client will be disrupted, okay? Because I've only got people, I can change. You got factories. You got whole kinds of other legacy systems. You have hard right? shit to move. <laughs> you got horrible stuff to move. So wake up and smell the coffee or whatever. Smell the cannabis. <laughs> or smell the CBD in infused coffee. 
Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Now, interestingly enough, um, you put this word soul in the title of your book. Yes. And of course, most people would equate soul with a religious and or spiritual conversation. Um, And so why is it you want to have a business conversation that is set in a uh, spiritual or a religious uh, context? The reason is because of two reasons. One is obviously it gives people a second take, which is always good for a title. Uh, But the real important reason is this. When I was studying a lot of companies and I was observing, and you know, the book is a combination of uh, 37 years of me working in a company, four or five years of me doing a lot of research, and then just stuff that I've come across. So my own job, things I've come across and research. What I discovered is that the best companies work like religions. Okay? But where you had heretics in it. So it was a religion with heretics and the heretics were not burnt. Those were the best companies. What do I mean by that? So for instance, I worked for a company called Leo Burnett for many years and, and still I'm in the Leo Burnett building. And I was fascinated and because I came from India and I was as, you know, immigrants are forever looking at things from an outside perspective. Even if we've stayed here for years and years, we always sort of look at it from like, what's this? Okay. Um, and my whole thing is, it's interesting. The first thing is they have a founder and the founder had died by the time I came on, but you see this video. So they basically indoctrinate you. Okay. So the best companies have an indoctrination program, like any religious order. The second is they, most companies have a book of sayings, right? Here's what Steve Jobs said. Here's what Walt Disney said. You know, here is what the founder of, you know, Herb Keller of Southwest said. So the second one is you basically have, you have an indoctrination program. You have a founder, which is like a Christ-like figure, right? Most of these companies then have a symbol. Ours was a hand reaching from the stars. Others have Mickey Mouse. There's something else, which is like the equivalent of a crucifix. I'm just looking at one religion, right? And then they have certain ceremonies and sacraments or foods. In our case, it was an apple. Other people might basically have something else. And you began to realize that that many of these folks basically said, you know, we bleed blue, we bleed this. So these were religious orders. But at the same stage, they were religions that actually adapted to the times. So, you know, you went from Catholic to Protestant to whatever, they would adapt. So the heretics continued to be able to speak up. Because when you bash the heretics, the religion died. Because no one had an early warning system that something was going wrong. Right? And, and so the best companies tended to be religious orders with heretics. And by the way, the biggest religious orders are the most profitable companies in the world. Like the Catholic <laughs> church. Okay. The, the so Catholic church, is, you, you would go out on a limb and say the Catholic, Catholic church is the most profitable company in the world. <laughs> it's one of the most profitable companies in the world and it's being sued out of existence, but it's still very, very profitable. I just heard they've got like $4 billion or so of potential or more because of the child stuff, right? So, 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 so to a great extent, this is not about religion because I, I'm not going into the religious thing, but I do realize that the best businesses were that. And they were actually working on two things. They were working on things that were very hardwired and left brain, 
and they were working on the right brain. Therefore, my stuff was, we have tilted towards the spreadsheet. We must combine the spreadsheet and the story to basically get to the soul. And the best businesses always have a story. The best religions have stories. Well, and why are these, the, these tomes so powerful, right? Why do we re continue to read the major, you know, um, religions because the stories that they're there and to to me they I, I don't know I don't mean this in any um, negative way at all I mean in the laudatory way the stories read like fables to me the stories read like fables and there is a Joe Didion the famous essayist basically had this great line which I use in my book which is we tell ourselves stories in order to live okay and in many ways personalities are interior narratives and we use narrative to make sense of our lives because if you take the moments of our life and you don't connect them with a story they don't make any sense and so they're just random events otherwise right just random random events which is why the great religions are so great because they have understood that right and they basically give people a sense of perspective a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose, and a sense of connection. And the best and in, businesses do the same. And so in that context, um, there's no difference between Buddhism and Disney. There is no difference, except take that Disney makes great rides. <laughs> so I, in fact, and I, I'll well, I don't know. I know some Buddhist monks who probably can tell you they'll take you on a great ride. <laughs> They, they, they would, but I think the best ones are the Mexican, you know, the, 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 the Mexican religious folks who can give us magic mushrooms. That's the best <laughs> ride of all. You know, and there's a movement now to legalize that stuff in California and I think in Colorado, but I know they're coming after mushrooms next. Yeah, they're coming after mushrooms next. And someone who's tried them when I was in Amsterdam where it's legal, it's an interesting thing to, you know, have. But... But the thing I, I always I wonder say, about mushrooms is I don't want, I think the job mushroom taster could be a very dangerous job. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, and why is it that you think that now is the time that we need to, um, to do this? You see, you, you describe sort of this overemphasis on the spreadsheet. Uh, this overemphasis on data. Um, and so why is now the time uh, to sort of deal with that and begin to talk about this? Um, so the, 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 reason, the, the reason is there are three big trends going on in the world of business. So you know, when I wrote the book, it was for anybody in the world, regardless of what size of business, as long as they have to work for somebody or with other people and work with technology. And, Around the world, these were the same questions I was getting. Uh, and the three questions were the following, which I then rewrote as chapter titles. So the first one is too much math, too little meaning, right? Which is, okay, I got all this data, I got all this math, but what does it mean? Which is one. The second is because of technology, we are increasingly in most companies working with the following ecosystem. One is we're working increasingly all the time because of mobile phones, et cetera. 
The second is we're increasingly working in a very flexible remote hot seat sort of manner, whether we're at a WeWork or whether we're hot desking or whatever we're doing. And the third is we're often basically our interaction tends to be not with a human being, but with a screen. On the other side, there is supposedly a human being. So what we now basics, so the second issue is people are less connected. So there are big advantages to these new technologies. Flexibility, uh, the ability to have people who could not normally join the workforce because they were mothers or looking after parents or you know whatever it was. So that's the second one. And third is, in, in many ways, it allows for more diverse thoughts to come in. So all that's good. The downside, of course, is you have, it's hard for relationships. It's really hard to focus, as Cam, you know, uh, you know in, in deep work basically says. And the, 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 the third is, to, to a great extent, you tend to feel isolated. So, for instance, one of the things I found is when people go to open systems, like everybody sits wherever they want, the number of emails goes up two to three times, not goes down. Because guess what everybody does? They put on headphones because they want, right? And so you'd rather send an email to someone with a headphone than walk into someone's office with their door open. Yep. So that's the I second. That. And, the third, and the third was this, 57% and about 40 to 45% of people are going to be working remotely. One to five, at least one day a week, if not five days a week. So almost half the U.S., this is a U.S. number, at least half the United States is working remotely. Data is huge. We're going to spend basically more in data than we're going to do in advertising and marketing in 2020, $200 billion in data centers, right? So data is huge. Half the people are working in these strange ways of working, not strange ways, modern ways of working. And then the third one, which I call, it's a chapter called the quest for meaning in the modern workplace is 57% of people in the United States, according to Tower's parent, are disengaged at work. Okay, so my thing is you've got remote working, disengaged people, lots of data, people saying what the hell's going on. And all of those three are scaling tremendously. So that was the reason why I said, hey, all those three are tilting towards speed, remoteness screen-based interfaces, but what about us as people? Yes, and this may be the stating of the obvious, but human beings require meaning to exist. Yes. We have to feel like our life means something. We have to yes. feel that, that we mean something to other people uh, and that other people mean something to us. Uh, and so, look, it, it's, it's a ridiculous notion to not have, in my opinion, to have a thoughtful conversation around the meaning of work. And, you know, my dear friend Eddie Yoon, he says there's a distinction between missionaries and mercenaries. And right. uh, it's very hard over an extended career or really over an extended fucking week <laughs> to work as a mercenary, even if you're getting well paid, right? Those of us who it, it, aren't on a, some kind of a mission that don't, that don't feel like our work matters and make some kind of a contribution or a difference and that we're part of an environment and a team 
et cetera, et cetera. In, in the absence of those things, um, life is a hard place to hang out. It, it, it is. And one of the lines I've written in my book is that life is a journey through time and reality in search of meaning. Okay. And because we spend so much of our time at work, if we don't find meaningful work, it's very, very hard to find meaning. Okay. Now, for a lot of people, they basically say, you know, I'm just going to go into work, check in, earn my salary, and find meaning somewhere else. And that's where they find meaning. So it's not like work is the only place where you find meaning. But in an ideal world where many of us have to spend many of our hours, that would be good to find meaning. And that's where I found these three factors of people find meaning through growth, through personal growth. People find meaning through a greater purpose that they care about and the company goes to. And people find meaning through human connections, right? And ideally, you get all three, which is growth, purpose, and human connections. And the good companies allow you to do that, and you achieve that. And that does a lot of amazing things for companies. You know, you, again, to your opening, one of the earlier questions about, okay, this seems to be like all very fuzzy, nutty. Here's what happens. Companies that have that, in addition to being highly productive, have very low turnover rates. So people basically stay. The other thing that most people don't realize is there's this famous quote about people believe people like other people like customers more than they believe companies. That's true, mm -hmm. right? Which is, I'll believe what you think about a product more than I will believe an ad for a product. But there's actually something people forget. I'm actually going to believe an employee of a company who meets me at a party more than I'm even going to believe a consumer of the product. Yes. Because my belief is the employee of the company has got something behind the scenes. So if you, if and, you meet a Microsoft employee yes, and you say, and, and, hey, how are things at Microsoft now? It's a new era, new CEO. And they say right. positive and, and things. Positive. Gonna... And you can see in their face, you can see in their voice, you can see in their you know, mannerisms. And so you say, hey, I actually believe you. So in many ways, the single biggest marketing or any weapon that a company has is its talent and employees. And yes. imagine if you give them meaning, purpose, and connections, you basically have between two and 150, 200, 300,000, right? Missionaries, to your point, that go out. Because the big difference is the problem with a mercenary are twofold. The first problem with a mercenary is you can't trust them. And you can't trust them even if you're their boss, because they have a price. So somebody comes and basically buys, basically buys a price. The other is half the mercenaries shoot their bosses. <laughs> okay. So my whole stuff is you're a horrible, horrible boss if you decide to buy mercenaries. Yeah. And so, so the mercenaries kill their bosses, right? The that king was is probably, dead, a, long that was probably king. a mercenary that cut us off. <laughs> I love it. Now, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you at least a little bit. Um, uh, give me your overview take on wh where the marketing world lies today. So the marketing world is in a state of what I call schizophrenia. And the reason I call it schizophrenia is the following. Many, many, many years ago, the godfather of marketing is a gentleman professor 
at Northwestern University called Philip Kotler. And he wrote the original book on marketing, which I got to study. I was at Chicago, University of Chicago, but we got the book from Northwestern. And he defined marketing at that time as understanding and meeting customer requirements. And I thought it was a very powerful definition. And then for many years, I had the opportunity to work with some of the best marketing companies in the world. And I realized that they actually weren't doing that. That in many cases, the way they were marketing was they really didn't have much competition. Consumers did not have much power and choice was relatively limited. So if a company had efficiencies of scale of manufacturing, could spend a lot of money in advertising and distributed their products extremely well, they were successful. So the original scale of marketing was you build brands through advertising, you got distribution, you basically had efficiencies of manufacturing and you had some resources. That in the modern world, because of companies like Apple, like a Google, like a Facebook, other technologies have actually truly empowered us. We now have voices. We have the ability to check prices. We can talk to each other. So all of a sudden, we have actually got extremely empowered. So if you have very empowered people, it means this should be the renaissance for marketing. Because if marketing is about meeting and, you know, customer requirements and customer require, customers have become more powerful, marketing should be in a renaissance. But because most marketing companies never marketed, they don't know what they're doing. And so when, when many companies say they're marketing companies, ask them how come they don't have any chief marketing officers on their board. They'll have people who look after technology, people who love after finance. That includes, by the way, P&G or any of these companies, right? These were never marketing companies. These were basically companies that were logistic and production companies with some consumer research that basically use scale to win. Now, all of a sudden, they really have to market. And that's one of the reasons why many of the CMOs are losing their job or they're discontinuing the CMO person and calling a chief growth officer. So I believe it's the renaissance of marketing. And when you think about the fact that people like Accenture and Deloitte and a whole bunch of people are trying to come into the advertising and marketing business, tells me they're not silly. They realize it's a growth function. And if you actually look at marketing, where technology, marketing, and strategy intersect, it's a $1.5 trillion industry, while marketing communications is a $500 billion industry. So in that way, it is amazing. So that's one thing. But the reason for the schizophrenic part of it is most traditional marketers, most traditional agencies are being very disrupted and disintermediated because they're losing pricing power because of things like Amazon and the web. They basically are losing the ability to communicate using scale in, in many cases. And they, are, they haven't learned the new black arts of marketing. They're still doing the old arts of marketing. Yes. And, and as a result, they are therefore doing one of two things, both of which are ridiculous, but sort of makes sense. Till you have a plan, these are what they're doing. The first thing they're doing is they're cutting costs as fast as they possibly can, right? And the second thing that they're basically doing is they're outsourcing their marketing to the people who most likely will disrupt them. So, for instance, a lot of what I tell folks is, and by the way, I'm friendly with the people at Amazon, Google, and Facebook, but their next, their eventual goal, right, 
is not to necessarily be a service company, but to so much own the customer relationship that they sell the customer all the products and they're the brand. Yeah. Just like Amazon's become the brand. Yeah. Because I've always basically believed that when you own the search, you own the data, you own the customer experience, and then you own the customer. That's what marketers are supposed to do. Yeah. But they have handed it over to other people. And well, and the so other thing, of course, that's extraordinary about Google in that regard is most people today don't even realize that when you quote unquote Google something, you type in TV. Well, all that first stuff that comes up is controlled by Google. The first yes. panel of information you're presented with is controlled so, by Google. So I'll right? give you and a, it looks like a web <laughs> search result. Yes, but, but it's controlled by Google. So I'll give you a thought on this. About eight, nine weeks ago, a friend of mine, uh, Rafat Ali, who runs a company called Skift, which is a travel, uh, both the, you know, uh, it's, it's a bunch of different travel resources, uh, had me speak at his conference. And one of the things I spoke to people was, said, what would, advice would you give the travel company? I said, look, the travel companies don't realize this, but they're going to be so deeply disrupted by Google, they don't know what's going to hit them. Okay. Two weeks later, TripAdvisor and Expedia announced their earnings, stated that some of the new Google things, like when you search for something that they have this little box that comes up, has completely impacted their ability to use SEO. And as a result, both companies' stock fell between 25 and 30% the next day. And let me guess, the Google travel services uh, are being advantaged by this uh, um, search algorithm. Absolutely. And by the way, when it comes down to it, it's a benefit for the consumer. So they will use you know, that, that, that thing. But what tends well, and to in fairness to Google, and look, they have a point. Their yeah. position, of course, is, hey, we're not a public utility. We're a company. And so yes. when a user or a customer of our product types something into our product, we're allowed to tell them whatever we want. It's our shit. It, it <laughs> is. And no, that, and they, and we have no, some, <laughs> there's no some crazy altruistic reason that we have to present anything. Exactly. And so a big part of what the way we're trying to thread the needle here is we're living in a world where you have to work with Amazon, Google, Facebook, et cetera. You just have to. But what you need to basically figure out is how they don't actually eat your lunch. They just eat maybe your breakfast. Okay. But you at least get lunch and dinner for yourself and you give them <laughs> breakfast. Okay. And the way you, you figure that out is Every marketer in the world, and I've worked for some of the best marketers in the world, they've taught me a lot. And one of the big things that they taught me is the importance of optionality. Because often I would serve a client extremely well, but they still would have other agencies or they would add other agencies. And my whole stuff is like, what's this, right? Like, and their whole thing is we need optionality. We need optionality to basically make sure we have the best people from all over the place. We want to make sure that we, you know, don't have all of our eggs in one basket. We want to make sure we can play one off the other. Okay, all of that. And they had optionality in the media world when they used to have ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, Hearst, Meredith, Time Warner, Condé Nast. Okay? They no longer have optionality. And so my thing is what you taught me, you no longer have. You no longer have optionality. So, yes, you're telling me that your programs are doing intensely well. But it's like being in the hospital. The, the monitor tells me my, I'm doing really well. I'm feeling really weak, but the only person who seems to be thriving is the doctor. 
<laughs> okay, so what the hell's going on? I'm feeling weak. The monitor says I'm really healthy, which is what all these programs are telling me. But my business is not so good and my future is not so good, but I'm constantly shoveling money on this thing that says everything is going well. But only the doctor seems to be getting wealthy. What's going on here? Right? That's the first thing to basically ask. And my whole thing is even if it was just that, think about the four other optionalities that you're giving up. Who controls your data? Think about that. What about brand reputation risk? The reality of it is none of these, and you know this, you live in California, none of these, these underlying ecosystems were engineered for today. They're clutchy. They've been one built on the other. So they're like whack-a-mole, right? So they say, you know, when Facebook or Google says, we got this thing covered, some other problem arises. So you will always have brand risk. The third is young people are beginning to ask. So when you have folks, like Mark Benioff, that who equates like Facebook with cigarettes, for instance, young people are basically saying, which companies are funding this? Who is funding this, this stuff? Well, advertisers are funding. So to a great extent, you begin to have with young people corporate reputation risk, which is different than brand risk. But the most important one is your strategic risk. And strategic risk is the inability to stop what you're doing. Mm. Right? Strategies about choices. When you have no choice, and you tell me you have no choice, what, what have you got yourself into, right? So, That's the downside of this. And now people are waking up to it. Because, and, and here's why they're waking up to it. Because the chief executive officers of companies who are now speaking to say, what the hell happened here, right? What, did, what happened to our business? Because marketing was always a stepchild to finance, technology, everything else. But because consumers are so much in power, marketing is the future of most industries. But most industries have not been served very well by marketers. And so now they're basically saying it's time to upgrade, change, and pay attention, which is why I'm very bullish on the future of marketing. But at the current time, all we're seeing is basically budget cuts and people saying we don't trust you. I love it. That's a fascinating perspective, and I deeply appreciate it. And I want to be super respectful of your time. Is there anything else, Shad, you want to touch on before we uh, wrap? So I think there are a couple of quick things, which is, uh, if I may speak a little bit about, you know, where I've set up the first three problems for my book, I then in my book have seven solutions, which are really interesting. But what's particularly intriguing about the way I've put my book together, and it's a sort of self-love because I'm talking about what I wrote, but people have told me about this. Hey, is if that, you don't love it, who, who's gonna? <laughs> right. So what happened is when I wrote the book, I began to realize that most nonfiction business books sell only 5,000 copies of their lifetime, right? And so my stuff is, why do they only sell 5,000 copies? And I figured out three problems. And so I said, I'll, I might sell two copies, but I won't repeat these three problems, right? And so the first problem was most nonfiction business books are self-published and are as vanity projects. Nobody's ever asked you to write one. Right. The second is they should have only been one chapter long. It's a good Harvard Business Review article that somebody decided to conflate into a book. So it's like a souffle. There's very little there, but it's all puffed up. Uh, and the third is they're filled with case studies, which are either irrelevant or outdated. So I decided to write a book, which a was over the last five years. I was answering questions, and people said you should actually write a book about these. So that was one. Second is it's a book where there are 12 different chapters. Each chapter can be read by itself, separately, in any order. It's sort of like a, uh, it's sort of like a 
uh, Spotify playlist versus a bad CD with one song, one good song, right? <laughs> I don't and have to the, buy your whole shitty album to get, to get that one song yeah, I like. <laughs> yeah, and the third is there are no case studies. They're just anecdotes and stories because it's the importance of stories. And some of the stories date from the 70s and 80s. So yeah. hopefully that will work. Well, and I got to tell you, I deeply appreciate books where you can just bounce around as somebody who yes. you know, has ADHD and all this stuff. Like it just, I'm going to bounce around anyway. So make it easy for me. Is <laughs> being very kind. <laughs> yes, that, that's exactly right. So you look at it and I, I try to have the each, each, it's just like I have the title. Each uh, chapter has a very bounce, has a sort of a riveting title. So one of them is called talk about the turd on the table, which is the shit that people don't talk about. Yeah. And another one is how to upgrade your mental operating system. Yes. And I'll, Hey, I'll give you one for the turd on the table. It doesn't matter how much whipped cream you put on the turd on the table. People still know it's a turd. That is absolutely right. Excepting they think it's a brownie covered with <laughs> whipped cream. <laughs> All right, Rashad, anything else? No, that's it. Thank you again for your time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And um, uh, please come back anytime. All right. There he is, Rashad Tabakawala. I'm sure uh, glad we had him on. And uh, I'm stoked you invested some time to enjoy this conversation. All right. We would like to thank Rashad and his awesome new book out. I enjoyed reading it. And I think you will too. It's called Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. My friends at onelifefullylived.org, this is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out, the number one onelifefullylived.org. Um, James Bashara and his awesome new podcast, The Below the Line Podcast. It's a great podcast, one I think you'll enjoy if you're uh, an entrepreneur, you're in the entrepreneurial space. And I was lucky enough to guest with him on episode number 27. That's The Below the Line Podcast. Check it out. Now, do you think your uh, company is awesome? Do you think that your employees and people think your company's awesome? That's where my friends at Socrates.ai come in. They're the leaders in digital uh, communications. They're the leading digital communications hub. Uh, imagine the ability to text or talk any HR question to your own company. That's employee awesome, and that's Socrates. Check out S-O-C-R-A-T-E-S dot A-I today. That's Socrates. AI. Um, and if you want to get your leading thoughts on uh, on some awesome podcasts, check out my friends at interviewvalet.com. That's interviewvalet.com. If you're a thought leader, they'll get you on the top podcasts. And if you want to make a difference for students in the United States of America, check out my friends at donorschoose.org, where you can make a contribution to help kids in the classroom donorschoose.org. All right, I need to remind you that today's uh, oddcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. Clearly, this oddcast gets produced in a studio that does contain nuts. <laughs> and our producer, while we're thinking about that, is Jamie J and the awesome Sarah Knox. We are edited by the infamous Mike D and show notes are by Diane Gervasio. Thank you so much, Candy Dandy. I love you, mom and dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Nick Denton, founder of Gawker. Sorry, Nick, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. And until we're together again, follow your different.